This is the politics of everything, and I'm your host, Amber Danes. Welcome to the podcast where we want to discuss the politics of everything from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment to equality, and much more. Our guests are experts in their field or topic of choice, even if you've not yet heard their name. This is a bipartisan podcast. So while we love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate, by no means is this a one-sided forum for any one political view. So please listen up and enjoy the politics of everything. Welcome to the politics of everything. This podcast is going to delve into a topic that affects us all, the politics of reading people. It certainly sounds like the ultimate life skill if you ask me. My expert guest is Alan Stevens, who has built a 30-year career doing just this. He's been dubbed The Mentalist Meets Dr. Phil, and I have to admit to being both a little curious and nervous about how he will read me today in our interview. Alan works with business leaders, teachers, coaches, and parents, utilizing a special form of rapid trait profiling and character sessions, which he says can greatly enhance our communication success in the workplace and at home. Welcome to the program, Alan. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Okay, so in a nutshell, what is rapid trait profiling and how does it work? Well, rapid trait profiling is made up of uh, four different modalities. The first one being your facial features. They will give away your uh, personality. And then you have micro-expressions which uh, show the emotions on your face that you're really feeling in that moment, body language that supports that. And then being know how to talk to everybody correctly. So using NLP or Neuro Linguistic Programming, as they call it. So what do your personality and character assessments really achieve? I mean, it sounds interesting and a fun thing to do in a dinner party or out with friends. But, you know, really, how does it help you connect deeply with others? Well, by being able to read somebody's personality, you know how they like to think and process. So you therefore know how they like to be spoken to and treated. And that gives you a an ability to build instant rapport with them and make greater connections. So you call yourself a celebrity profiler amongst other sort of labels. What does that really involve? Well, the celebrity profiler title was actually given to me by the world's media. I've been uh, interviewing or re- uh, reading uh, people like uh, politicians, British royalty. Last October, I was flown to London to speak with on the behalf of uh, Disney Films and also uh, Gillette. Uh, to the journalists to explain to them how the face uh, tells, what stories the face tells before you utter a single word. And who are some of the more sort of interesting characters and what, what can your reading of them tell us? Someone that we would perhaps know, whether they be, I guess, royalty or a Hollywood person. Is there anyone sort of that comes to mind that you can just unpack and bring to life for us really what, what the celebrity profiling aspect is? Well, you look at uh, a lot of people in Australia being, you know, noticing the people like the, the Bachelor, and a lot of people do follow those shows. Uh, Sam Woods, who was uh, a couple of years ago, was the first one that I profiled. When you look at his face and you look at the uh, the shape of it, you're able to determine whether he's somebody who would be a long-term, uh, doing things long-term, or somebody who liked a lot of change. And he in particular was somebody who liked a lot of change, knowing that, then knowing that his job would be important and that could affect the uh, home life relationships. Interesting. And what about someone who's overseas, in case any of our audience are not familiar with Sam Wood because that's obviously a very Mm -hmm. Australian local celebrity. Is there anyone else that comes to mind that uh, we could all relate to? Well, probably the uh, person who's in the news the most these days is uh, Donald Trump. 
Uh, I've profiled him several times for uh, news.com and about his hand motions, his movements, um, how he connects with people. So you'll notice that with his hand movements, uh, they are more about being able to try and control the audience. So he will have one hand moving where he's trying to get you to actually look and focus on what he's uh, trying to indicate, not so much what's right, what's going on behind the words that he's using. That's very interesting. So by knowing this, how have you kind of made this into a living? Well, I train everybody from school teachers, psychologists, business people, parents. So you can profile anyone from a young child uh, from their early ages to understand their uh, behaviours, understand how their learning styles will be before they get to school. So you know what they're going to be like when they get to school. So where instead of them uh, falling uh, victim to the systems that we have because the teacher's unable to read them, once you understand that child is somebody who needs things in a sequential order, they're fidgets, they're easily distracted, etc., you know how to deal with them so that they don't end up falling through the cracks. Oh, very powerful. Yes, I've got two boys and um, one's at school and one's at preschool and I uh, can definitely relate to what, what you're sharing there. I guess with your over 30 years of experience, including counselling, psychometric profiling and the neuralistic programming, NLP and body language, it's such an interesting field. But how did you actually get started on this path? Well, I originally started by, uh, in about uh, 1975, I was put in charge of a group of people. I fast-tracked my learning. I worked with telecom in those days, and I fast-tracked my uh, learning and became one of the youngest qualified people. So I was put in charge of a group of uh, staff who were all older than me. So straight away, I had to then get them on side. Then later on, I joined the surf club at a later age. And I was put in charge of, uh, well, I became club captain and in charge of three beaches. So now I was in uh, the um, same age as everybody else, but I had far less experience and I'm telling them what to do. And later on, when my first wife left, I raised three boys on my own. So they were four, 11 and 12. So now I had to understand their generation as well uh, and be able to uh, take on that role of understanding what was going on at school, their emotions and everything else. So it's really been my experience through life that have led me that way. But about four or about eight, uh, ten years ago now, somebody just mentioned to me one day, have you ever looked at reading faces? And that got me very curious and I found the specialists in the different fields, those that uh, taught the micro expressions, others who looked at the facial features. But what surprised me was none of those people brought the two groups together and they didn't incorporate body language or how to speak to the people. So I just brought all that together into the one uh, uh, process. So it's been an ongoing process now over that 30 years. Excellent. Well, I guess your reputation as an authority in reading people um, speaks for itself, given the calibre of organisations and individuals you work with. A lot of this is based, obviously, on nonverbal communication. Mm. So just for us newbies, what are some of the easiest ways that, that we can read people if, if they're trying to conceal something you're in a meeting and you're kind of putting together a deal and you feel your gut feel sometimes tells you that mm. there's something amiss but you don't really have confirmation is there any sort of obvious traits which people will characteristically uh, draw upon in those sorts of circumstances you know you can look at the the body language for a starter when people are talking to you and they don't want to um or if they're telling you lies quite often their hands will be around their mouth. But you've got to make sure that you read it in the right context that they're not just scratching their face at that time. If it's something they're consistently doing, if they're looking at you and then they look away uh, when they're explaining things to you and it's uh, you're asking very um, in-depth questions, there's something going on then. 
if people's eyes, I used to say that if somebody's eyes were uh, moving around, you couldn't trust them. But really, if somebody is really focusing in on you, if they've told you a lie, they're going to focus in, their eyes are going to go nowhere else. They want to determine whether uh, you've picked out that they were lying or not. So somebody's eyes who don't move are more uh, distrustful than somebody who's looking around because we have to look around to source information. We look up for verbal uh, responses. We look out to the side for what things sound like and we go look down for our internal feelings and what's going on in our thoughts. That's very interesting. I mean, I've had a career that's been in, in journalism and I know when I worked in TV and even with my media training practice now, one of the things we, we try and teach the participants is about eye contact and the mm. fact that I guess the camera can frame you. If you're looking up or looking away or looking down or looking at your hands, we often um, use those nonverbal cues as an audience to kind of go, oh, that person's hiding something or they don't know what they're talking about or they're fidgeting so they're nervous and they're not backing their information. But it sounds like there's a little bit more to it there than is. that. So if you're, somebody says to you, ask you a question where you've got to stop and think, your eyes will move around to source the information. So I said, we'll look up to, uh, the, for something that's uh, visual. So if I asked you how many windows were in the front of your house and you had to stop and think about that, your eyes are going to look up. They'll either look to the left or to the right, depending on which way you're wide. That's, in my case, I look to my left when I'm remembering something. If somebody asks me, well, what would something look like if so we pull those windows out and put in a big uh, French window. What would my house then look like? I will now look up to the other side to get that visual image. So if my eyes weren't moving, I'm not thinking. I've already got the answer ready. Mm, that's very interesting. Well, I'll, ha I'll have a new take on that when I, when I coach my clients, that's for sure. <laughs> I guess, is there any examples, um, and you don't have to obviously name names, where you've maybe misread the signs? Because other people have obviously studied NLP. Other people might have studied body language. Because, you know, some people are very good at hiding some of their flaws, if you like. So how how then do you work with someone like that? Well, first of all, the facial expressions are very hard to control. So if you're trying to conceal something, because what happens, somebody says something, something happens, unconsciously we react, and then the conscious mind steps in and the expression is then shut off. So it's a fleeting expression of a fifth of a second down to one twenty-fifth of a second. The same thing then with the body language. You know, if somebody's got their arms folded, they say that's, that they're not interested. Well, that could be a barrier to the cold. It could be a lot of things. What's the context of the situation? So I never assume I, I believe I've got it right. If I read the facial features, then I talk to the person and look for the reactions I'm getting back to know whether I've got it right. So that way I don't fall into the uh, trap of uh, misjudging people. I always test everything. I don't have that arrogance to say, oh, yes, I saw that uh, look of contempt on their face. Well, it could have been a, a twitch that was on their uh, face at that time. Exactly. I guess if you haven't met someone before and you are trying to get to know them, it's not – I mean, they say, you know, you make, we make very instant decisions about whether we like someone or whether mm. we trust someone, but I guess it takes time as well. It does. And it doesn't take much longer time. When you start a conversation with somebody, it's usually the friendly side. This is where you benchmark them. This is where you find out which way they look uh, to uh, remember something, to uh, tell you uh, or make something up, you know, explain a, a new concept. So you benchmark them first and then when you get into the conversation, then you're asking them things that are more uh, serious where you might be doing an interview, for instance. That's when you look to see whether there's any changes. You know, if your benchmark, If your memory side is on the, uh, the left, but now they're looking uh, to the right when you've asked them about a past experience, of how they've done something in the past. They go, oh, I, I did such and such, but now they're looking the other direction. You know they're making it up. 
Well, that's very fascinating. I guess um, we're today using our voices to communicate solely. We cannot see each other in, in remote locations. The joys of technology, we can actually do this. So what about vocal indicators? Can they kind of give you signs? If you're kind of talking to someone over the phone or like we're doing today, you're not actually seeing them. How do you read them? You can hear the change in the inflection in the voice, the change of the speed of the uh, conversation. Uh, if they're thinking, you'll hear some hesitation. So you know then from that what is also going on at that point. The uh, inflection in the end of the voice that a lot of people have, does that change? That's interesting. Yeah, I can imagine that. I mean, often you can tell when someone's nervous, for example, even in the communications work I do, we look, you know, with nerves, how people use their breath and how they actually articulate words. You can often tell very quickly if there's nerves at play. Um, I guess on the other side, you know, you've got, it's a no brainer in many ways that all aspects of human relations and interactions are improved when you have that ability to read people accurately. So, if someone comes to work with you, what is the sort of process you take them through to get to a point where it's 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 actually useful information for them either at work or in their personal relationships? Well, if they're learning to read, they want to be able to connect like a salesperson, for instance, and they want to be able to read their clients more effectively. We'll start looking at the traits to the, where they can build instant rapport. While they're looking at somebody else's traits, they automatically understand their own as well because we need to know how we like to function. We need to understand what pushes our buttons so, so that we can make better connections with other people. So when I'm using this in the dating scenes, for instance, I'm getting people to understand themselves first before they worry about the type of person they're trying to connect with. Once they understand themselves, then they look at, well, okay, what do I, uh, what am I really looking for in a partner? If I did have that partner, how do I talk to them to make that sure that relationship uh, goes on for a long period? And uh, is a, a good relationship. So how can it, I guess, moving forward, how can it help people, for example, uh, change the way they communicate? I mean, we're looking at obviously reading other people, but if we're good, analyzing ourselves, can we shift how we're communicating easily or is a lot of it sort of habitual? What we'll find is that as far as the personality goes, under stress, we will always revert back to our own style. So if we're somebody who um, uh, withdraws, so somebody with ascetic, ascetic appreciation who likes to feel things, the downside of their trade is, because every trade has an upside and every trade has a downside, the downside is that they can keep things inside and keep them in too long to where it becomes a, an emotional um, outburst when they can't hold it down anymore. So if they've got a partner and they understand that about themselves, they know then to talk to their partner when things long before they get to that level. Uh, if their partner is more um, on the opposite trade, more of dramatic appreciation, someone who likes to express themselves a lot, they can then learn how to talk to their partner. They can also then look at what things push their buttons and uh, construct the environment around them or the way they talk to them to make sure those situations don't arise. Great. So I guess um, if someone was to come to work with you, I mean, do you tend to do one-on-one? -on -one? Is it groups? I mean, how, how do you sort of, I guess, uh, achieve outcomes? Is it? I, I'm wondering if it's something we can kind of pack into a couple of days together or is it something where you would definitely, you know, have repeat clientele? It always comes down to, well, as far as this goes, these skills, virtually you use those as a foundation of every other business. You don't say grow your business if you don't make connections with people. So really, this is the foundation. So therefore, I can uh, teach people one-on-one. -on -one. I teach them in groups. I do it over the internet, face-to-face. Uh, -face. I put courses online. So it comes down to the person's individual need. How do they want to learn this and for what purpose? 
If they want to learn quickly how to uh, meet and greet people, to be able to make that instant connection with them, uh, just put a, um, a course up online where they can, it's all pre-recorded, where they can self-pace their own learning. Other people go, no, I really want to do this where I've got a group around me. So I've got live groups, plus I also do groups via Zoom over the internet where people can be all around the world and all come together for one time, or I can do it face-to-face or one-on-one via the internet. The joys of technology, it must have, uh, you must have seen some changes in the years you've been running your business. I mean, obviously, you can be remote and you can have clients all around mm. the world without you physically flying to them. So that's, yes. that's interesting in terms of, I guess, growing your own business. Very much so. I started out, first of all, face-to-face, which meant they had to be either local to where I, I am here or in a, like I'm in Newcastle, Sydney wasn't too far away. So, but I'd have to have a number of them down there on the one day to actually justify my time. But with technology, well, I've been training psychologists in Florida, salespeople in Asia, uh, people in uh, sales and the IT industries in Europe. Well, you know, the only two uh, continents I haven't trained on so far has been uh, the uh, North Pole and the South Pole. So, you never know. There's still time, I guess. Well, there's people who go out there on research into their huts and they're um, in groups. They've got the internet, which they all have these days. Uh, they can always do group trainings via the internet. So that's exactly. on the cards. And I guess just touching on that, I mean, is there, I guess there'd be cultural differences too. If you were to say China versus say the United States, you'd probably have to have some sort of understanding of, of the behaviours in a culture before you even go in and do your work. There are some traits which um, uh, are very much based on the culture, say the depth of the eyes, the uh, width of the nose, for instance. Those ones you'll find that ethnic uh, cultures, uh, we call it um, indigenous cultures, I should say, or uh, Asian communities, they might be different. But I'm looking at 68 traits and presently including a few more traits to bring it up to about 81. So what I'm actually looking for is what stands out the most, what stands out second, do they moderate or enhance each other, what is next? So if somebody walks past me in the street, I can profile them on the major traits that I can see in that instant. So you don't need to have all of the traits together. So if I've got one that's um, culturally based, I may leave that out because it's not that important. It only adds a little bit more to the overall profile. It's uh, not absolutely necessary. That's interesting. I would have thought there would be more discrepancy, but uh, maybe as a people we're all kind of got similar traits in some ways that uh, we all access. Well, if you think about the micro-expressions, you're using the same muscles every time that you pull a, an expression like angle, we use exactly the same muscles in your face, in my face. Anybody who's been blind from birth, any culture, we all use the same structure. So if you use those muscles over and over again, you're going to build ridges and crevices. This is uh, a lot of the parts that I'm reading, not just the dimensions of the face, but also those ridges and crevices. And that therefore makes it universal. That's great. I guess um, you've referred to on your website, um, obviously, Carl Jung, the father of psychology, who stated that to understand the human mind, one would learn more by experiencing all areas of life, including schools, clubs, gangs and community, than they ever could from a pile of textbooks. Mm. How has this view impacted your own practice? Well, I've done uh, formal studies, but what I've found, especially with doing an undergraduate in psychology, you will learn all about the people who did things, you will learn statistics, but there's no experience in that. My whole life has been from a school of life. It's been those experiences with formal studies that I've picked up along the way as well. Uh, you need both. If you just do formal studies, 
where's your experience? You know, you've gone from school, you've gone to university, you've now got a degree and you're starting to apply that. But, you know, as I say, the degree will get you the, the job, but it's your experience that gets you promoted. That's interesting. So do you keep, I mean, how do you keep your skills up to date? You obviously have a lot of experience and you're, you clearly have a successful business. I mean, self-education for most people is still important no matter what stage you're at. How, how do you keep up to date with what, what you need to know? Well, my whole approach to life is that the most important thing I'll ever learn is the next thing I learn after I know everything. So I'm always uh, reading new information. I'm looking for other people that might work in one or two of the different fields that I work in that are doing things differently. And I'll, there's a gentleman just recently in Romania who works with a different form of face profiling. So we've done some uh, cross-promotion uh, work. So I've actually looked at his stuff. He's looked at mine. We've worked together on that. So collaboration sounds like something which you're open to in your in your business. Oh, I believe that collaboration is the most important thing. I do not believe in, in uh, competition. I believe we hold ourselves back when we worry about that. I will go out and find anybody that's in my field or starting to go into that area and I'll work with them because we bring something different to the table. We're always different to each other. And, in fact, my whole focus at the moment is to create my competition and train them to the highest possible level. And people go, you're insane doing that. They go, well, it's one of me talking to a lot of people and it's a long time between uh, uh, jobs if you look at it that way. If other people are out there doing it, yes, the reputation is going to spread, but they have to be doing it right. Yes, exactly. I guess that's the thing. When you've been in the industry and you are in some ways a pioneer in what you do, mm. you do have that responsibility to make sure that the industry and, if you like, the other practitioners are operating at a, at a, at a, a good level, a level that you think is quality and, and actually doing your whole industry mm. a service rather than a disservice. That's right. See, I believe I have a moral obligation to train anybody who wants to learn. If they're my competition, all the better. My whole approach at the moment is finding people who are top in their field, psychologists, counsellors, coaches, uh, and those that want to learn and uh, work with me to train them to a level they become specialists in their fields because I want to go wide and get them, get them work with them so that they go deep into their organisations and their fields. That sounds very sensible advice. So I guess in your own experience, do you have any mentors or inspirational figures that you have drawn from or continue to draw from and what have they really taught you about business and life? Well, really my mentors, I always have a coach. No matter how good you get and probably the better you get, the more you need coaches because you get so involved in what you're doing, you need others to remind you of what you're missing. So I've got a couple of good coaches I'm working with at the moment. But in my life, I would say that, uh, my whole approach anyway, first of all, is I don't teach people. Well, I'm a part-time teacher, but I'm a full-time learner. I have to learn from everybody that I'm working with to be able to provide them with the best service that I can. So a lot of my mentors and teachers have been young children. And when I was in the surf club and examining the kids for the, their bronze medallions, and I asked them, you know, tell me about what you're seeing out in the surf. God, I got I learned a lot from them because I, I, I were looking with different eyes and I was learning new ways of looking at things. That's really wise advice. I think sometimes we always think of mentors and inspirational figures as either peers or people mm. that are older than us, but you've challenged that notion. Exactly, because everybody has a gift. I don't care who they are. If I profile them, everybody's different from everybody else. Seven billion people on the planet, seven billion different personalities. Kids with autism, Asperger's, I've loved working with them because some of them have got some fantastic gifts that are really exciting. Then you look at them in awe. You know, my God, they might be, be able, might not be able to tie up their shoelaces, some of them, but the other stuff that they do, they outstrip all of us in what they can actually do. So 
learn from all and everybody that you meet. That's great. So I guess if you could close off by sharing a bit of your final manifesto for this particular podcast, what would you say to listeners about, you know, some steps about the politics of reading people? What are sort of, say, top three or top five things that we need to all be aware of? Well, the first uh, top three things I'd always say is never assume. Always look at things in context. Look at them in clusters. So if you see one uh, mannerism, for instance, you think, oh, that means such and such. Yes, your unconscious uh, mind will pick up. This is why we get that gut feeling. We've already read the person, but we don't know why. But we'll see something. We think, oh, that's that's wrong. We'll look for some more to support it. Make sure you've got enough information. But always understand yourself, first of all. Read the other person, understand them, and then talk to them in the way they want to be spoken to. And I guarantee you'll have much better relationships very quickly. I I agree. And I think um, the politics of reading people is definitely a subject matter that all of us can relate to. So we really appreciate you coming on the program today. I will have some details of Alan's website and links in our show notes, but you've been listening to The Politics of Everything and I'm Amber Danes. Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed The Politics of Everything, we thrive on feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network and your friends and family. I'm also always on the hunt for fabulous new guests. So if you've got a view to share and an idea how to get our listeners excited, please email me at amber at bespoke comms, that's B-E-S-P-O-K-E-C-O-M-M-S dot com dot A-U and we'll be sure to get back to you. Until next time.